Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your existentialist emo nut and Religionless Church host, Mesa Meninga. In this second part of a two-part episode, I talk with both David Cogden and David Roberts. David Cogden is the acquisitions editor at University Press of Kansas. He is also a theologian and former guest on Religionless Church. David Roberts is a youth pastor at Watershed. Watershed is a progressive, non-denominational church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He is also a student at Polar Theological Seminary and a Godzilla addict. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Bantam Angel. Bantam Angel is a solo indie experimental pop artist. You can get connected with both David Cogden and David Roberts in Bantam Angel and their work in the links in the episode description. Also be sure to check out the first part of this episode with David Cogden and David Roberts on your podcast streaming app of choice. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, masonmeninga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If religionless church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church. So let's get let's get nerdy. Let's get a little theological. Let's let's because um, th- th- there's two there's two conceptions that I feel like um, you know kind of two theological ideas that I feel like have been life giving or have had legs in the watershed space. Um, and, and so I, I kind of want to get David's thought, thoughts on them. We've talked about them a little bit, but but I think it's I, I think it's there's some good stuff there. The first is um, so so give a little background. My my uh, master's program, my seminary program through Fuller Theological Seminary is their Master's of Arts in Global Leadership, which is, I try to explain to people, it's kind of a, a, a MAT version of like, um, of like a missiology degree. So it's a lot of intercultural studies. It's, it's uh, a lot of international students. Um, I had no idea what I was getting into. I picked it because it was cheap and online and accessible. And I've actually been blown away how, um, how good it, how good good the exposure to kind of 
just a lot of the the um, non-Western, non-white expressions of church have been. So I've really appreciated mm-hmm. it for that. But um, but the gist of the program is basically you use your own uh, ministry or missional context to sort of inform the course material. And 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 since I've been a watershed the last two years, the last two years of my coursework has basically been papers and projects about watershed and the framing that I've come with. And I, I, I've kind of taken a, um, taken a concept of missionary identity that I get from David's, from David Congdon's big, um, big book on Rudolf Bultmann that sort of reimagines uh, the, the notion of conversion, the notion of kind of missionary identity away from sort of an imperialistic or colonialistic mentality where where the missionary is converting the other to him or herself uh, in a in a sort of imperialistic or homogenizing way to a to sort of more of a a canonic or even th- th- this idea that to be a missionary is is this process of translation where you are you are making yourself intelligible and accessible in solidarity with the other often the marginalized other um, and, and and I'll let him uh, expand on that because it's all his work and, and and stuff. But 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 reimagining at least watershed, uh, uh, I've used kind of that idea to to call watershed a post-Christian insider movement. And if you're not familiar with the notion of insider movements uh, in kind of Christian missiology and and maybe other forms of missiology, um, it, it happens a lot in like Islamic or or Hindu communities where you have you'll have people who for for whether it's for safety or for culture or for, for a myriad of reasons, they remain culturally and often even doctrinally or dogmatically uh, whatever their faith or religion of origin is. You know, so they're gonna someone might remain culturally and even dogmatically Islamic or Muslim, and yet they will profess a genuine transformative experience with with Christ or, or, or with Jesus, and and you know, but 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 they're not identifying as a Christian necessarily. Uh, and, and and it doesn't have to be Islamic. It, it can kind of be across any faith tradition. And in a place like Watershed, I'm finding traction with this idea that people can have genuine experiences with Christ. And 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 a lot of David's work has given me kind of the theological categories that I need to explain how that can be true, even in instances where they don't claim Christian identity, even to the degree to where maybe the name of Christ is not spoken at all. And yet, and yet, you know, you can still say that. And, and I want to be cautious here to not to not s- sort of appropriate them as Christian if they don't wish to identify that way. And yet, at the same time, kind of paradoxically, you could say, kind of, kind of, I can I can see what I am referring to as as you know being co-crucified or or, or to experience you know um, the risen Christ through their religious experience through their faith expression. Um, and I, and I don't know, I, I'm worried I'm kind of getting deep in the weeds of, of, of some of David's work here without giving some more context. But, um, but that idea of this post-Christian insider movement, that, that, that someone can have a genuinely transformative experience with what I am naming as the spirit of Christ and yet not have to be confessionally institutionally, aesthetically, you know, whatever, whatever category you want to put on it, Christian in any discernible way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I love that terminology. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, when I was at universities still, I was very, a strong defender and proponent of the insider movement. 
um, over against a lot of the evangelicals who were very you know wary of it. Um, I, I remember actually we had a big discussion about uh, uh, Bill Durness, who's a professor at Fuller, mm-hmm. um, his book on Insider Jesus, which came out when I was toward the end of my time there, um, where he he defends insider movements in that book, and I think in a in a, in a similar way. I mean, it's he has his own approach to that, but. Um, but I, what I like about the insider movement is precisely that differentiation between faith and culture, mm-hmm. um, and and recognizing that religion is a part of culture. That's mm. a crucial, mm-hmm. really crucial bit, and that's what makes a lot of evangelicals, especially on the culture war side, super super f- afraid, right? Because there's once you al- allow, once you recognize that your religious identity, your religious kind of uh, you know uh, norms and practices are cultural norms and practices. Once you realize that, once you realize that that's the case, um, it subjects you to all kinds of of critique and, and analysis, right? It, it means that your your religious practices are, op- are open to scrutiny from the outside, right? And, Can I just that, say something really quick about that too? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, so that's pri- primarily the impulse behind Doug Paget's work with mm-hmm. Solomon's Porch. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he, he was an anthropology major at Bethel, so that's like his major uh, influence. And so the way he understands Solomon's Porch is that culturally, this is Solomon's Porch, the way we sort of organize ourselves, the way we structure ourselves, is simply a cultural expression of how we want to express our faith. So it's not sort of it's not something that's reacting to, you know, conservative evangelicalism or the mainline church. It's not a reaction. It's simply uh, the cultural expression that a number of people from the very beginning of Solomon's Porch's history wanted to uh, or felt that this is the way that they organize their own um, selves culturally, like how they organize their lives, what sort of structures that they find themselves in. And they wanted then to culturally create another structure of faith community that resembled that. That's why I think Solomon's Porch in a lot of ways definitely does not look like an evangelical church, nor does it look like a mainline church at all. It's sort of its own expression because it looks like a bunch of people from Southwest Minneapolis and mm-hmm. in the, the culture that is distinct to Southwest Minneapolis in 2000, well, and at the time, 1999, and has sort of carried itself to 2018. So, uh, yeah, I just want to interject that you can no, keep going. That's, that's great. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, um, th- now I think that th- there's a danger th- 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 I mean, many people who have recognized that religion is cultural have then gone on to say, well, that means Christianity is its own culture and we should then advocate for that culture over against, right. you know, Western culture or, Amer- you know, the godless American society or whatever it is. Right. And you have those post liberals. That's the post liberals that I, I, <laughs> I treat so kindly in my work. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, I think that's um, that has been like you, you can kind of trace that progression where like people thought that their Christianity was a cultural. Right. And then they, and then they realized it was cultural and then realized, well, we need to embrace that. Let's make it totally cultural. So we have our own culture and now we're going to oppose the other cultures out there. Um, part of my work is to say your religion is definitely cultural, um, but it is also not at all uh, divinely ordained and authorized and it's subject yeah, yeah. to massive critique. And I, um, and I hope that like I express Solomon's Porches, yes, not that. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> you did, you did you okay. for sure. You were down in all the bottles. 
Um, but we do have to be honest about the fact that every every form of church life is cultural. We have to mm-hmm. embrace that and realize that and, and not be under the illusion that somehow we're op- occupying a, a special holy space that's free from culture, right? That's somehow... Mm-hmm. You know, specially demarcated from those influences, right? It's 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 always a translation. It's always a a kind of instantiation of of your beliefs within a cultural situation. Um, but uh, and that and then that's that means that you have to continually critique it and retranslate it again, right? That's part of a lot of what my work has been trying to do. Um, so, but I think that's. Um, I, so I love the insider movement analogy, and I think that's very helpful. And I think, in some ways, that expression is a, a an attempt to do to kind of outdo or replace uh, what Newbegin was up to. Uh, and Newbegin, you know, he he made his name in terms of kind of being a missionary to the West, you know, trying to kind of kind of translate Christianity to the West and make the West uh, re- re-Christianized. But he did so in a kind of a reverse colonialism, right? Where he, it was someone, like, <laughs> the West was now the godless the godless nations, and we need, now need to make them re-Christian again. Um, and I think, uh, so while he, while I think Newbigin was very helpful in criticizing the West, right, that was his insight, was that the West is not Christian and everyone else is non-Christian. Uh, Newbegin realized that's not the case at all. Um, but I think what you're talking about and what I'm trying to get at is something much more complicated than that, which realizes that uh, every society is open, is a, is a possible moment of, of encounter with something we might call divine, we might call it you know, the real, we might call it you know, some sort of spiritually significant, you know, existentially real moment, right? Um, in my book, I define this in traditional theological language as this encounter with Christ, as kind of interruption by Christ. Um, but that can occur in non-religious spaces. It may often, maybe almost predominantly occurs there in nowadays, perhaps. Um, but uh, the point, nevertheless, being that we can we can see those moments of encounter in every situation, in every kind of cultural moment, and. The challenge now is not to think of the church as a special location where these uh, these encounters with the divine, with God, are 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 like guaranteed to occur, right? Rather, um, what I've tried to articulate is the church as a space where we are acknowledging the fact that this encounter with God is occurring outside of these institutions, mm-hmm. outside of these spaces, and uh, and we're shaping a community to be present in those places, to be participating and active in those moments where they occur, right? To recognize them and to participate in them. Mm-hmm. Um, now that, that's kind of how I would perceive a, a kind of underlying vision for what a church ought to be or could be. Um, uh, and, and I think that does lend itself to something like a watershed or Solomon's porch, for sure. And, I, and it's perhaps um, more likely to occur there because you had the freedom and flexibility to do this kind of work. I mean, it's hard for me at an Episcopal church to say, hey, you know, let's, let's take this you know, uh, old liturgy and these very traditional pr- church structures and let's kind of rethink church this way. You know, that's not going to happen. I kind of have to kind of nudge them very mm-hmm. gently and slowly, incrementally towards that. And so 
um, perhaps you you know spaces that you that you both occupy are going to be more is potentially successful in uh, realizing some of what I have in mind. Um, I, I it's and so you know why 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 not be at a space like that for me? You know I think it's that's an ongoing question. I think for that perhaps uh, is uh, pre-cognitive. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I don't know. There's there, there are just certain you know um, I I'm, I'm I'm now so acculturated to that space that I I it, it for me serves the purpose that a watershed or Solomon's porch does for the two of you. Right. Um, I mean, one of the things that I really do like about my high liturgical context is that uh the the liturgy for me um once you're in it long enough once you're once you're kind of accustomed to the book of common prayer long enough um it becomes transparent uh it becomes invisible to you and that invisibility that that transparency serves the same function mm. that your institutional flexibility does mm. so i i have a a i have a a static and inflexible space but I have a liturgy that once you once you've uh, you know become accustomed to it so much, um, it becomes transparent to the event, to the reality beyond it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in in going through those similar words and motions, I do encounter that that reality. Um, but there's a kind of a learning curve you have to get to that where that becomes possible, <laughs> yeah, right? right? Initially, somebody from your church will come to an Episcopal church and be entirely uh, you feel completely left out from that experience. Mm-hmm, right. Be completely yeah. barred from that moment. Um, they will not have that experience that I have. And it might take them six, 12 months to get there. Is that worth it? Probably not. You know, maybe, maybe it is because you know, who knows what their life experience has been. But, but maybe it, for some people it is. Uh, for me it was, but I was also kind of intellectually inclined to do that work, mm-hmm. um, to kind of go through that process. But, um, that's just that's just the way it's been for me. But I think there are different routes, in other words, to get to that same point of being a post-Christian insider movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I happen to do so through a more explicitly Christian structure. Right. But, but the experience I have is is very much like that. And I think it's not it's not an accident that a lot of people I encounter in Episcopal churches are often agnostic. Um, they're often. I mean, I I mean, I I've been the church I was at in Chicago at least, um, was probably 20, 30% LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, very diverse in terms of theological and, and you know, whatever beliefs they might have. And so it was a place that was inclusive of a variety of, of, kind of locations and, and social locations and, and beliefs, um, who, because the liturgy was this kind of almost, you know, uh, infinitely flexible mm-hmm. uh, you know medium you can kind of all join to the same ritual and pass through that ritual to something deeper beyond it yeah no I like that and I even feel like I, I see us in our own meandering contemporary evangelical way exploring the way that liturgy is infinitely translatable in that way and and that that is absolutely an advantage that I think the established mainline churches have an uh, have an advantage there just just having years and decades and centuries even of um practice for lack of a better term 
Um, but you said something, or you said something a moment ago that that is a great transition to the other nerdy thing I wanted to talk about. And um, you're talking about this idea of that you, you know that we can experience God um, in kind of this paradox between both transcending culture, but also in an enculturated way, in a, in a way that that kind of event of that event of encounter that that moment where you're placed outside of yourself, you know, the, the, the salvation moment that, you know, um, that can happen. That's not confined to the liturgical space. It's not confined to the institutional space or to the church space, inst- at least as church is institutionally defined in, uh, in, in, in your book, in The God Who Saves, that leads you to sort of reimagine what is the church and kind of this reimagined ecclesiology, which is really interesting. And this will just be a shameless plug for people to go buy and read your book. but. <laughs> Um, but out of that, so, so, so kind of with that said, you know, you know, and, 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 and the church is kind of this opportunity to name, acknowledge, and then rally around and kind of be present in those spaces. So, so in our staff meeting today, uh, with all that in mind, in our staff meeting today, we kind of had this, this conversation where, where all of our, you know, the, 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 the lead pastors, there's two kind of co-pastors who lead watershed and they asked the rest of the staff who's in the room kind of. Like if in five years, ten years, twenty years, like what do you want our legacy to be? What do you want to see? And and one of my coworkers, I think quite rightly, said something to the effect of, you know, I want to see, I want to see the marginalized voices in this city having a seat at the table. And I, you know, and of course, absolutely yes. And and I said, I don't want there to be marginalized voices. And to some degree, I think her dream is more realistic so to speak but where the the christian and i don't want to i don't want to say that christianity has the exclusive claim on this so i'll just say where the theological component becomes really informative and helpful and kind of transformative for me is the way that and it doesn't even have to be a theistic thing I mean, you could probably you could probably get this get to this through you know, you know, you know, philosophy or, or political theory and stuff like that. But for me, is it gives me language to kind of hold intention and articulate this, this more, I'll call it an apocalyptic or eschatological horizon. This kind of thing that's constantly in view that we're moving towards, hopefully, while at the same time, not in an escapist way. Not in a, not in a, not in kind of this utopian, you know, rapture evangelical sit on your hands because it's going to burn and we're going to get dis, you know, we're going to get zapped up anyway. But, but, but this idea that no, there is, there is constantly this ever receding horizon of justice that we're moving towards. Um, I feel like I'm a, I'm an advertisement for everyone else's book and podcast today in church, but, um, <laughs> I, I had the privilege of spending a little bit of time up at Theology Beer Camp, uh, you know, with Homebrew Christianity last week, and and David's partner in crime, uh, Travis McMakin, got to got to share a little bit about uh, his project and you know the work he and David do in dialectical theology more broadly, and I think that's going to get released, so 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 be looking for that uh, because it's going to be some good content there. But um, one thing Travis said that 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 Trip found eminently tweetable. Uh, was something to the effect of if you are a Protestant Christ- Christian uh, in any way, shape, or form, you in some on some level affirm salvation by faith. And in layman's terms, salvation by faith is just this idea that there's no such thing as a spiritual hierarchy. And if there's no such thing as a spiritual hierarchy, it follows that there should be no such thing as a material hierarchy. Therefore, if you are a Prot- Protestant Christian, you should, by definition, be a democratic socialist. 
this is the point in the podcast where if my dad has made it this long listening, he's just turned <laughs> it off. But, um, but, but, but no, in, in very practical terms, what I'm trying to get at here is the theological component of which David Congdon's work has been very constructive for me, gives me the tools to introduce the political components and, and to, to have language and categories and, and quite frankly, convictions and motivations to be politically active and not in some bland general sense, but politically active in very specific ways. And I'm not saying that that can't happen outside of a, a church community or a liturgical community or a faith or spiritual community, but I'm incredibly energized by how it can happen and how, and how the faith conversation and the theology piece, I think, can serve as a catalyst for galvanizing that sort of political action. And I don't think that's exclusive to this messy post-evangelical space. I, you know, I, think, I, I think David can do that in his space as well. But that's maybe for me more of an argument for retaining theology than it is for retaining institution. But like I said earlier, part of my attraction to David's theology is because it lets me retain theology without retaining (laughs) institution. Man, that's, that's very interesting because I think in some ways I'm attracted to institutions insofar as I am <laughs> precisely because of the political element. Because for me, the, the best argument for a mainline denominational church structure is because you can get some political work done. Right. You can get stuff done. It's really hard if you are just a lone, lone church out there advocating for your particular issues in your community to have the voice and you know social and political capital to really make change occur yeah that's you know you can do a lot of stuff if you're the bishop the presiding bishop of the episcopal church or if you're you know whatever the the, the you know moderator of the general assembly for the presbyterian whatever you know so you can do a lot of stuff with that kind of broad platform that's mobilizing thousands and thousands of people across a country or across a world. Um, that to me is the single greatest argument for a large denominational church structure is you can mobilize people for action. You can get bodies in the streets, right? That's, that's the, to me, the reason, that's probably the number one reason actually I'm part of a denomination is for that sole reason. Um, and I think that's, also, my biggest concern about non-denominational church structures is um, the inability to. Well, th- so this is my biggest concern about non-denominational church structures is um, <clears throat> the inability to to secure or guarantee or ensure that the social and political actions you're involved in are going to pres- you know, to persist beyond the life of your community. Every church is going to die. Every church goes through a life and a death process. Mm-hmm. Um, 
is your is your work is the work you're doing going to persist beyond that minister beyond that pastor beyond that local church you know, does it have a life a life beyond it um, and having a network of of communities helps to ensure that you're not you're not a lone voice crying out but that you actually have other people who are going to carry on that work beyond you now is that a sufficient reason to then form denominations? Maybe not. I mean, I think there are other, re- other ways to do this. I mean, I think I am attracted to something like um, Oasis, which is a secular humanist church church structure. You know, I think um, for those people who are more agnostic atheists in their, in their ideologies, um, Oasis is an attempt to do something like that. You know, you have a mobilized network of communities that don't believe in a God, but believe in doing, in, in gathering together in communities and doing some socially important work, right? Um, <clears throat> and I quite like what they do. I mean, I think uh, if I weren't Episcopalian, I'd probably be an oasis. Um, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I, I think uh, I could encounter God there as much as I do in an Episcopal church, for that, you know, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> so, but what, what, what I like about both of those is that there is something there is something in place that can get something done that can actually really mobilize people uh, and not just around a person like a local pastor or whatever, but actually around, but, but broader, you can actually yeah. cross network. Yeah. Now that's a fair critique. And I appreciate the, the, the check against, you know, a personality driven ministry or one that's overly reliant on the legacy of a specific person or even a specific staff. I think that's valid. I mean, I mean, cynically, I could say, you know, that that that, you know, the presence of a of a Pope Francis or a, or a Archbishop Michael Curry, you know, isn't going to keep Ross Douthat and uh, and Rusty Reno from writing in the New York Times and First Things and and rallying <laughs> their bases yeah. against you know against <laughs> you know against the the institution more broadly. But but no, yeah. but point taken that, that that there is that there is a there is a there are some built-in checks and balances and there's there's the legacy piece there and i guess I, I i guess part of my response in agreement broadly would would be and yet and yet there is that contingency that might be proved to be a generational contingency who still won't go near the institution and yeah. how do we how do we galvanize them how do we organize them how do we rally them i mean i mean um you know mason's alluded to some of the stuff that that, that doug is doing uh with uh, with vote common good right now, traveling the country and 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 trying to organize people and um, you know I, I alluded to earlier some of the conversations I've had with John Thornton about what it, what can a localized church community um, um, I don't want to I don't I don't I don't want to speak for John here but you know you know some he, him and some of his colleagues are talking about some really cool things when it comes to uh, localized debt relief uh, and 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 things like that and so um, I do think to yeah. some degree. This is kind of where the the lines of 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 community can really blur because there can be a you know yeah Michael Gunger and Science Mike and and and, and Hillary and and them they're you know they're not going to be doing the liturgists forever but I do hope that there's going to be a legacy both spiritually and politically from a lot of the work that they've done mm-hmm. and, and 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 so this is this is where and not that the mainline couldn't get on board with this it might just take them another century but. Um, <laughs> But but I do think I, I, I do think technology and the internet and, and, and Twitter and Zoom and, and, and all of these things 
kind of blur the line from what to, to where a community, a given community begins and ends. And there's a danger there, no doubt. Uh, there's a danger for personality driven ministries. There's a danger for, uh, for corruption. To, to be honest, there's, there's a danger to kind of get sucked into the capitalistic machine there and, 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 and all of that. And, and that needs to be discussed and talked about and debated. But there's also, I think, an opportunity. There's an opportunity to unify and to proliferate and to organize um, and not just talk about things, but, 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 you know, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, people, people cynically joke about hashtag activism, but man, people have gotten a lot of political action done with hashtags in the last two years. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and so, so I don't have anything definitive to say other than, other than, other than I'm still optimistic. No, but, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're right to be. I mean, I, I absolutely think you're right that something like you know, podcasts and, and, and Twitter and those, those forms of social interaction are more likely today to connect and to generate uh, movement for social change. I mean, I, I agree. And it's, um, I certainly don't think that <laughs> institutional churches are on the vanguard of, of mobilizing people for, for social change. I mean, that's not, not, not remotely the case. But um, uh, but it, it's, it's just striking to me. I'm, th- I'm thinking, you know, people like Nadia Bowles Weber or even Brian McLaren. His, I mean, they both moved out of their churches, right? And they've moved into kind of their public intellectual or public, uh, you know, roles, the right? The public pastor, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, and so, you know, and and that's, you know, our like the contemporary version of having a denomination is to have a big pu- big author platform. Right. Mm-hmm. That's or, or a big media platform. That's our kind of 21st century version of having uh, a, a degree or having the right ordination or having the right church structure behind you. Right. We used to have institutional structures, institutional authorized official uh, credibility that would grant you that kind of that kind of base for action. Now we have, you know. You know, uh, publishing contracts. You have mm-hmm. podcasts. Mm-hmm. You have those, right? That's is that. Uh, I mean, I don't have a, like a judgment about what's better or worse. I just kind of. I mean, I think what you're getting at is that this is the way society changes. You know, we we have to adapt and we have to translate things to our new situation. It's funny. I I am, you know, in my theology, a a strong and passionate advocate for throwing out the old and embracing new situations and yet i'm also you know personally uh i'm i'm admittedly a bit of an old timer when it comes to i'm i'm comfortable in some of the older traditional structures institutions and so um you're probably making a decent amount of your twitter following happy right now by saying that (laughs) (laughs) probably true yeah so i mean i i i do like you know, I, I do like certain traditions that, um, there, it, it's funny to say that and yet realize that, I, you know, I'm, I'm this kind of pyrotechnic when it comes to traditional, uh, ideas in the church, but, um, it's, uh, but I do worry, I do have some concerns about, and I think you've articulated them, some of them already with the capitalism issues mm-hmm. and kind of the, uh, being bound to, the market of of opinion and um yeah i don't know it's i think part of the reason why i 
decided to just do away with all of my trappings of evangelicalism, all the trappings of that non-denominational church life was um, so much of that um, became so much of a, of a, of a, of a show, so much of an attempt. Mm -hmm. to, I mean, part of the problem I, I found with those evangelical church structures was that you were always trying so desperately to, um, to attract more people to your church. Right, this whole the seeker sensitive seeker the seeker church movement with all that. I mean, that was just an example, but there was a lot of that was was kind of in the DNA of evangelicalism when I grew up. It was always always about you know what kind of uh, rock music should we get into our worship? What kind of you know uh, you know technology should we incorporate into our church in order to be attractive to the young people these days. It's always that it was an attempt to figure out how can we get more people in the door, in the seats, to give more money, right? It was but, this. But, but David, didn't anyone ever tell you that all of those people are that those are souls, <laughs> right? And right. To be saved. Absolutely. Yes, they need to be saved from the fires of hell. Um, we're going to save them with bigger speakers. <laughs> so. Better sound production. Yeah. Um, and I think that's. Uh, you know, there's a certain point at which, at least for me, I was not able to disentangle the forms of that of that church life from the very cynical, you know, mon you know, monetary and financial reasons behind a lot of that. Right. I mean, my brother is a sound engineer who grew up in the same place and he does sound sound production for a lot of these churches in Portland. And so but but he himself now is fairly you know, basically agnostic, you know, and I think that's, um, as he would tell you, I mean, seeing church after church, just do whatever they can to put on the best show possible to get the best, you know, uh, money at the end of the day, it becomes incredibly disillusioning and, and destructive of any sort of belief that there's something there worth preserving. I think that's, um, so now, does that mean going to an Episcopal church is the, is the answer? Not necessarily at all, by, by any means. But for me, what I did find refreshing about those spaces is the complete lack of interest in trying to make it uh, appealing to people, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And now, that might be their downfall. That might be the doom of the mainline churches. But in defense of that mentality, I did find that being free of that anxiety to preserve yourself, to preserve your institution, does tend to liberate many of them mm. to be completely real with each other, mm -hmm. um, to be utterly honest about what they think and what they're doing and who they are with no pretense and no, no attempt to... Uh, paper it over with niceties uh, and pieties that will make it appealing to somebody, right? There's no apologetics in there. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Tell me, do you love me? I just want to be set free. I wrote you many letters staying Tears, counting all my many fears, hoping that my 
So today we have Katie, and Katie is the person behind Bantam Angel. So Katie, you just released a new album called Existential Beauty. Um, yes. Yeah, what, what sort of inspirations did you have going into the process of writing that album? So it started, the first song that I wrote for that album was Father Figure. Um, and it's just, you know, it's about stuff that happened with me and my family, my dad when I was younger. And my mom actually brought up the idea of writing, creating a whole album where it's is a, describes a certain time period of my life. Mm -hmm. So each song, like some of the songs have a certain um, number afterwards, like Father Figure 10, because it's about when I was 10 years old, or I have oh, this song okay. called Poltergeist 15, and it's about this relationship that I was in started when I was 15. With and so each song, yeah. <laughs> and so each song is supposed to represent like a certain time period of my life and like tell a story in a sense about what I've been through up until now. Huh. I love that. Uh, hence why I'm assuming it was called Existential Beauty, because it sort of is a chronicling of your existence. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. So what um, musically, like what were maybe some influences that uh, went into this album? Who were you listening to? Were there any bands or artists that you were like, God, if I could get like their sound on this, this would be great. Oh, gosh. I mean, <laughs> I have a lot of musical inspirations. Um, to be honest, something that I think a lot of people wouldn't expect is that one of my biggest inspirations is Pink Floyd, The Wall, specifically oh, yeah. that album. Um, I mean, my music, obviously, my music is like an entirely different genre from that, but like they're right. just their lyricism and like their way of mind and stuff have really inspired me. I mean, they're honestly what made me want to start making music. Mm. Um, but otherwise, like a lot of um, artists, like, I mean, to be honest, like Lil Peep or um, uh, let's see here. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lil Bo Weep. But I don't she, think so. Yeah, she is one of my favorite artists and our music is pretty similar because she definitely inspires um, a lot of my sound um, and style. So, yeah, she's someone, um, yeah, Lil Bo Weep. She is definitely an inspiration to me. And like XXX, Tentacion, um, mm. he was definitely one of my inspirations. What are some other upcoming things that you're planning on doing? Uh, shows, other projects, anything, uh, anything with um, Bantam Angel that you're hoping for? So right now I'm working on, I do a lot of open mics, um, okay. which are really cool just for like practice and to like get my name out there and meet new people and build connections. But um, I mostly perform as of right now at house shows. Mm -hmm. So like in the Minneapolis or St. Paul area, people will like put on concerts in their basement um, or wherever. So house shows. And that's where I mostly perform at. Um, I don't have any upcoming events as of right now. But once I release this next album, I'm definitely going to be like booking some events and doing more open mics and performing at more house shows and stuff. And house shows are really cool because it's all local artists, mm -hmm. um, which is really great. I think it's really important to support your local upcoming artists. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I love it. And I love like the community that's surrounded by that. But, For sure. Yeah. Awesome. What are ways that people can connect with you and your music? Um, mostly I use Instagram just as like a, mm -hmm. um, 
outlet for like getting my music out there and connecting with people and collaborations. So um, yeah, people can look up my Instagram. It's just Bantam underscore angel. Um, and I'm always looking for new collaborations with different artists and to expand my horizons. And um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for chatting and um, I've really enjoyed your music. Um, and yeah, I'm excited for everyone to be listening to this. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. And asking God as I've sort of been listening to this conversation, uh, all the sort of books and authors that have really influenced my way I think about this conversation has sort of come up. Um, and so I was curious, what is one book that you think has either influenced you in this conversation or you think would be great for a listener of this conversation to go out and, and read? Uh, so, uh, and, and the God who saves can only be used once. <laughs> so I've already keep, said that one. I'm going to also, I'll pick something different. All right. So keep, find something different. I'll go first. Um, I, I've mentioned him a number of times. I mentioned Sol- Solomon's porch a number of times. Doug Padgett has a book called church in the inventive age that he released a few years ago, really short book, but has completely influenced the way I think about this conversation has completely influenced my ecclesiology. Um, and I, I really think that that's where Doug's impact years from now, what, where, whatever impact he will have, I think that's what the impact will be. It will be less about him yelling at that dude from the way of the master and that went viral on YouTube. It will be less about that. And it's going to be more about his ecclesiology and, and some of the books that he's written that sort of aim at that. So... I really think that uh, Church in the Inventive Age is certainly one that, you know, it's a quick read, easy read that I think uh, is really had, has been influential, influential in my life and, and could potentially be influential to others' lives. All right. Who wants to go next? Um, I'll go. I mean, I, I mean, this is a book I use in my work, but uh, uh, J.C. Hockendijk, um, uh, his book, the, the Church Inside Out, is a book that, um, I it's an old book it's from 1967 I believe so it's it's quite dated but um Herkendijk was a a um, church ecumenical leader missiologist who uh, really sought to um rethink what the church should look like in our in our current age now reading the book you know you can see he's trying to deal with something in that period of time but a lot of it reads fresh today, and certainly if you just change a few things here and there, um, it's easily applicable to our current situation. Um, but it's a it's a f- fabulous little book. Um, it's it is highly criticized by people who are very scared of the proposals he makes, which is part of the reason why I like it. Um, I was just gonna say that's even better. <laughs> yeah, but he uh, 
but it's a it's a it's a radical book no no question about it yeah it's great only one yep only one d rob <sighs> all right uh i'll go with um i'll go with one that has been beneficial to me for youth ministry um it's uh, Andrew Root's most recent book, Faith Formation in a Secular Age, oh, which is the best. Is is basically, you know, it's 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 Root translating Charles Taylor to a to a readable amount, and then and then using his uh, his Princeton theologian background to to sort of to sort of reflect on that theologic uh, theologically. Um, you know, so there's uh, there's there's some there's some Bonhoeffer in there, there's some Jungle in there, and um, but. More than anything, I heard some of what Root talks about in that book and some of the things David was talking about earlier, talking about getting kind of this, this cultural transli- uh, transition that we've had in the West over the last few centuries to where the spiritual, the divine, or, or, or kind of that, that, that divine interruption uh, can start happening not only, um, not only in places outside of the institution, outside of the church, or outside of kind of holy places, but also, um, but also increasingly uh, in places of dereliction, in places of suffering, in places of God forsakenness, and um, uh, in, in in many ways that's 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 in alignment with a lot of David's own work. And um, Root basically does that for youth pastors, or, or or for pastors more broadly. It's an accessible book that I think is very conversant uh, with a lot of the things that we've talked about uh, this evening, and it's the first in a series. And so I'm looking forward to see uh, what the next couple books in Andrew's series, um, kind of where he takes that. All right. Now that I've selfishly added those to my Amazon wish list, um, <laughs> let's go into the ne- next question. Uh, how can listeners get a hold of you? I know David, you've been on here before, but, uh, just a little quick reminder to those who, uh, may have not bookmarked your website. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I suppose Twitter is probably the best way to get a hold of me nowadays, but, um, no, I'm on, I'm on Twitter at DW Congdon. I have my website, dwcongdon.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's probably how to find me. You know, every time you say DW, I immediately think of the TV show author. It's the best. <laughs> With like the, the aardvarks? The aardvarks. Cause his yeah. sister is, is DW. <laughs> DW, yeah. Uh, see for me <laughs> growing up when I did, uh, it was uh, with the joke was Darkwing Duck, you know. So for me, it was that DW was uh, I, I grew up in that age of, of cartoon television. So um, that was the the joke I thought about when I was a kid growing up. How about you, D Rob? <laughs> myself. Yeah, I am. Uh, I am less prolific in, in my writings than uh, than than the other David here. But um, you can find me on Twitter at uh, D Rob eighty seven. That's when I was born, nineteen eighty seven. Oh, I thought that was and, maybe your uh, jersey number back in the day. Got a. Rep the rep the jersey. No, I was super Christian, super evangelical, always number seven. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so DRob87 on Twitter. Uh, you can find uh, Watershed at watershedcharlotte.com. Got a couple sermons there, and uh, in in you know this is this is years 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 out. But but Congdon and I have talked about co-authoring at some point a book Ooh. that would hit on a lot of what we've talked about here. Um, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of yep. disseminating a lot of his his theological ideas into. Can I write into, the forward? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah sure. Yeah. Right. Into into in, into kind of practical pastoral and calm, you know, and maybe prophetic ways. And so, yeah. so uh, now that we've said it out loud, I guess it has to happen. No, I mean, I I definitely want to see that happen. Name it and claim uh, it. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much. You guys are awesome. Thanks, Mason. Thanks, Mason. If that episode left you hanging and you're wanting more from David Cogden and David Roberts in Bantam Angel, you can find links to connect with them and their work in the episode description. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmenega.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if Religionless Church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction now and forever. So be it. Something inside me.